0: Been working. Oh, been working. Hello and welcome oh, to the Community Broadband up. Bits podcast, a production of the Institute for Local Self Reliance and MuniNetworks.org. I'm Lisa Gonzalez. In our 19th episode, Christopher Mitchell interviews John St. Julian from Lafayette, Louisiana. John is a local organizer who is heavily involved in the community's efforts to invest in a municipal fiber network. Christopher and John talk about Lafayette's struggle to overcome the lies generated by incumbent telecommunications giants. Cox and others wanted to stop the community's investment in its own fiber network. As a special treat for our audience, listen for an actual example from one of the many deceitful telephone push-pulls conducted as the referendum drew near. Eventually, however, the community overcame the lies, passed the referendum, and have never looked back. We include the complete telephone conversation on our website. Now to Chris and John.
1: Johnson Julian, thank you so much for joining me on the Community Broadband Bits podcast. Uh, you are one of the main forces that was uh, an influential organizing force in Lafayette uh, throughout the many years in which there was a battle about whether or not to build a municipal fiber-to-the-home network. Uh, so thank you for joining me. Oh, it's always a pleasure. Hey, we, um, we learned about you from your prolific writings, um, and I think we'll get into that in a little bit. But first, uh, can you tell us a little bit about Lafayette for those poor souls that have not read my case study on it or, or aren't familiar with your Lafayette Pro-Fiber blog?
2: It would be a great idea for folks to read that study, incidentally. <laughs> Thank you. Uh, I love that. Uh, Lafayette's, a I guess, what people would call a mid-sized city. It's located deep in the South, but also deep inside Acadiana, what we here call Acadiana, which is Cajun culture and Creole culture. Uh, And that's probably something really worth understanding, I guess, that there's a real insularity here in both positive and negative senses. Uh, There's a uh, still alive French culture, there's a still alive uh, alternate music scene that has deep roots. Uh, and those differences can be interesting when they're played out against the background of big national and international uh, causes, like telecommunications for municipalities or for local communities. Um, beyond that, the, if you get a sense of this place, it's, people talk about places being flat. This is flat. You sit on an alluvial plane, I'm 100 miles from the Gulf. And I think the elevation of my house is 22 feet. And everybody around me thinks I live on the ridge. So uh, get you gives you some sense of how different it is. Major crops here include sugarcane. Uh, we have a unified city parish government, which is a blessing and a bane. Well, an interesting difference that would relate to, to your podcast, I think, is that uh, we have a local electrical utility, LUS Fiber, that's been around since the late 1890s, and uh, that was put in in a very similar fashion. We followed a tradition, or at least creative one, uh, by bringing in our local fiber utility in much the same way and under the same auspices as LUS Fiber, and that was a great resource to start with.
1: Well, actually, I think if I just jump in, I well, think the um, the creation of the electric utility seemed to have played a major role in turning Lafayette into what it is today. A um, hundred years ago, so it was an electric and water utility.
2: At the time, when Lafayette's located along a river called the Vermilion, at the time, New Iberia to the south and Opelousas to the north of us were both much larger cities or towns. Uh, at one point. If I'm remembering correctly, Opelousas was a temporary capital of the state during the uh, unfortunate uh, war between the states. <laughs>
1: right. Okay.
2: <laughs> and uh, But those were both much larger places. And Lafayette prides itself on that kind of fourth. They fought for a un- local university. They fought for uh, becoming the center of oil and gas industry here. They fought little fought for this electrical utility when they, when outsiders were not providing what locals felt like they needed. So yeah, that's a big part of the story, I think.
1: All right, so we tell the story in the case study, and I don't want to rehash that too much because your expertise is really in the organizing side. And I think people are really interested in how it was that there was so much community initiative, there was so much... Um, how there, were, there was so much just enthusiasm and, and outreach uh, in within the community in ways that I don't think we've seen in any other example of community broadband. Uh, we've certainly seen some examples. Um, but, you know, maybe we can start by talking a little bit about what you learned by watching the Tri-Cities of Illinois when they discussed um, the possibility and ultimately had two referendums, both of which were beat down by Comcast and I believe AT&T.
2: Yes, I think that's correct. Yeah, the, the whole thing, I was in touch with some of the folks up there. They were an inspiration and a source of cautionary tales. Uh, that was a big deal, I think, in the community of people who were interested in community broadband, to watch the tri-state folks being beaten down so solidly. Uh, and to know that they came in with such a flood of money at the end. The uh, last-
1: You say they, it was the Comcast and the, the big companies that came in with the flood of money. Big, big outside funds
2: of money, uh, fighting against people who were pretty local. And, yes, there were lessons to be learned there. Uh, one of the lessons I think that, again, the folks I communicated with emphasized to me, was not only was there a huge pot of money that went dump on you at the end, <laughs> but you had to have the active support of your local authorities, whoever was the respected authority in the community. Absolutely had to be full-throated for this.
1: And right, and that could be elected officials, it could be business people, it could be someone in academia. Who knows? But, but you're saying the local authority, however defined, right?
2: Tradition calls for always in all places, invest some individuals in the community with a sort of special set of honors. And, uh, if you can get those people behind you, behind this idea, uh, have a much more powerful thing. And we were lucky enough in Lafayette to able to learn the lesson from the trials, that uh, just insisted insist that it had to be that way, we had to be willing to get out in front of it. And so one of the things that really did work very well for us was to learn those lessons.
1: As I understand it, there was a push from multiple directions, uh, but it really this project really got going when Mayor Durrell came in and Terry Huval with uh, the, the utility said, we are going to really start studying this and we're going to see if we can make this happen. Um, is that where the organizing started on your part? Probably a
2: little before that for me. Again, I had thought of the tri Cities thing. There had been some thought and drift in the air here that this would be a good idea. There had been a study group several years before that had been put together by LUS Fiber and LCG, the local Lafayette Consolidated Government, to uh, study the issue. And they had come back with a report that said that it would be a good idea to build a fiber ring, uh, especially to support the electrical utility. In the course of that study, some of the people some sort of mid-sized business people and some activist types had come to the conclusion: to be even better, library to the home, and to, to, to extend it out that way. Um, that didn't happen at that time, but that that wholesale ring the, the, to put up a big wholesale ring to put the governmental utilities on it to take that business away from AT and T uh, and put it give that savings was a, a to the, to the local government, it was strongly opposed by AT&T. at withdrew from the local chamber. There was a huge amount of outcry about it, and it all settled back down. Nobody wanted to touch with a 10-foot pole. Also, on uh, cable companies at that moment. But um, that's part of the background. So that happened before. And it also left people with a bad taste in their mouth.
1: With a bad taste in their mouth because there was a sense that AT&T – was ripping off the schools or in some way not meeting their needs or just in the way they treated you as outsiders? There
2: was a sense that they were trying to be bullish. We are AT&T. We will withdraw our support from the Chamber of Commerce. Oh shucks. Uh, was sort of the response
1: right and actually we should just clarify this uh was bell south which um before it was at and t um i really don't think it's much of a difference um but it's um, really bell south became at and t and so it's the same people
2: right it was bell south throughout the fight itself uh in 2005 but it, it eventually shortly thereafter the merger occurred Bell south uh became a t and you're right
1: Okay, so let's talk a little bit about what was happening then. Um, you, there was a study committee, and you knew several of the people that were involved with it, and there was a recommendation that there, that, uh, that they do a wholesale ring when, when others felt that a fiber-to-the-home network was, was appropriate at that time. What sort of actions and, and organizing did you do at that point to start changing the discussion?
2: When it became an active issue, which did take place, as you mentioned that it sort of got laid down and put on the back burner. Uh, when, that, when you mentioned Joey Durrell coming in as a uh, newly elected mayor, uh, instantly our first Republican mayor in probably forever, um, he, 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 one of the interesting background pieces was that uh, our utility director, Jerry Hubal, had actually endorsed his opponent, his chief opponent. And Terry, I believe, and he told me that he was afraid that he was gonna be fired. He got called into the mayor's office early on, the very first week. What Terry actually wanted to do, greatly right to his credit, was to ask him what he needed to do to keep him. <laughs> uh, he was absolutely correct in the assessment that Terry Yuval was a community resource and not to be tried for And Terry's sort of, I think, in a stunned fashion, sort of trying out, well, there is this plan I've had for quite a while. And I've been really trying to push, but nobody's really publicistic. But look at this. And uh, Darrell sort of said Durrell came from a very business oriented background. He was put in by, he was backed strongly, let us say, by uh, local chamber interests, by local business interests, by a small group of four or five wealthy individuals in this town who've always been very influential.
1: Right, and Durrell himself was a private business owner and had been the chair of the Chamber of Commerce and was very integrated into the business community. Absolutely.
2: So it was something, it was a leap for him. And I think that the famous quote is something on the lines of, I don't know about this, but if we don't at least give it a fair look, well,
1: damn us. Yeah, I think the, the, the expression he uses is shame on us if we don't, if we don't see how far we can take this.
2: So that was, really the, that was really the
1: turning point. So you didn't have to start by convincing your local leaders, which is tremendously helpful. Uh, but you have a large enough community that, in our experience, communities of over about 50,000 people often are very skeptical of their local leaders in ways that they're not in a smaller community. Uh, so let's, uh, let's talk a little bit about how you started to do some outreach.
2: Well, first, it probably should be said that Lafayette is a small, large Middle-sized city, okay. That there is a huge amount of distrust of the local leadership. Uh, there's also really serious divisions within the community, both along racial lines and along cultural lines as well. Uh, we have the traditional racial issues, I think, that our community, our country is burdened with, but uh, we also have the division between French-speaking, French-descended, and Americans. <laughs> and so, there's a lot of divisions and a lot of reasons, a lot of chess pieces in play, and any political moment. The things that we did to start up, and to be frank, there's several things that we tried to begin this. And yeah, I knew one of the guys, especially, who'd been on this committee. We got together and we we needed to get something
1: going. And that and, was Mike Stagg, right?
2: Mike Stagg. And we did different things, like try and arrange coffee house discussions. Um, <clears throat> Did work. Yeah. <laughs> we called several meetings focusing on various people, like um, the development or the geekery. We would find lists, we would get in touch with our friends, we would pull together a list of 60 or 70 people and invite them to a meeting. And while those all happened, and to some extent, they didn't reach takeoff on their own. Each time we hoped they would, each time they didn't. And so it just, you know, it didn't just happen. Uh, What we ended up with was a large list of names of people who had expressed a positive opinion about this. uh, Focused on the geekery, focused on mid-sized businessmen, focused frankly on people, mid-sized political activists, and mid-sized business people who were not uh, Gods of the chamber. Uh, and we started a, a discussion list online. We started having more informal meetings and pulled it together much more gradually. The very beginning, it was a rough, tough road to hoe. I think, in part, because there's simply no tradition, in Lafayette at least, of economic based activism. And I think that's probably lacking in a lot of places in this country.
1: And I think it's really important to point that out. I remember um, a formative moment in my education was um, on reading a biography of Mother Jones, the labor organizer, and realizing that she probably lost you know, five or six of, the, of her organizing fights for every one that she won, and that we shouldn't get discouraged if we try to organize something like in Tri-Cities and get beat down. Um, because fundamentally, the lesson to learn is is that you get smarter, you get better at it, and you find ways of, of uh, and sometimes, you know, maybe you just find the right community that, that, that wants to move forward with a project like this. Um, but it, it, it's something that, that you and I have discussed a couple of times now is that, you know, this was not inevitable in Lafayette, and when people look at Lafayette as, as a success story, it's hard sometimes, I think, to go back and look at all the ways in which you could have said, well, we gave it a shot, let's, let's move on to something else, right?
2: And that's, I think thats a really fair way to, to put it. And I would encourage anybody who's thinking about it themselves to be realistic in their assessment of the problems they're faced, but to not let it pass. Uh, we would never have succeeded if we hadn't learned the lessons of the Tri-Cities. So even failures are not. One of the big things we learned for the Tri-Cities besides support of the leadership demanding that it be vocal and obvious and aware that they are going to get us to help them.
1: So that's the first lesson, right, is, is making sure that you have the local leadership on the record saying, yes, we need this.
2: In sort of a, a pre-structured agreement along the lines of you need to be willing to speak up when people challenge you, challenge the, the integrity of the community. Our cities also scared us pretty thoroughly about the power of the last two weeks. I did a bunch of research, all of us worked on it, and we said, really, we could never match them in terms of money or in terms of a final flash of power. But what we could do was inoculate the community. So every time they did anything that was a lie or was stupid or was condescending, we just went after it with hammers and tongs. And the phrase that we repeated quite often was that you really can't believe anything they say. You just can't believe a word they say. There was a blogger that was didn't do a whole lot of blogging on the issue. He used that phrase once, and I picked it up, and we all picked it up, and beat on it. <laughs> and I think that was quite effective, the inoculation strategy we used to call it.
1: I think the last thing we want to talk about here, and and I think it's important, there's so much to talk about in Lafayette that we will be coming back and revisiting this with you briefly to to talk about other aspects of it. But um, I really wanted to hit on a final lesson, I think, which is almost a jujitsu approach that you used. Um, They had the ability to reach out and to touch every last person, Uh, phone calls and mailers and and things like that, and even organized events. Um, But... It was one call in particular that you recorded, and I think not just the recording of it, um, but the way you distributed it afterwards really turned their strength against them. And and I can't emphasize enough how I think important it is, And uh, so maybe you can just tell that story a little bit.
2: Sure. It was great tale. Uh, a local person who had been involved in the larger – we built sort of a, an organization of volunteers that started with an organizing committee that met weekly, fairly large number of people. And then it, it it teared out to a lot of people who were active supporters. And one of the active supporters was a photographer. Uh, he was a uh, Geekish. And he got a phone call and had the he knew it was happening because we had blasted out there's this phone, there's this misleading phone call. Come and watch out for it. You know, tell us what exactly they say. You know that kind of thing. So we blasted that out to our email list, which was in the hundreds by that time, and he was one of those people. When he picked up the, the phone, he turned on a voice recorder, which is legally in, you know, in Louisiana, one-sided recording, and he recorded the whole thing, 20 minutes of it, and he was wonderful. I can't imagine doing as well as he did.
1: Right, we have the audio of it, and I'm going to put it up so people can, can get it as well because it it's really is just a terrific back and forth.
2: It's wonderful. And he goes back and forth, and he, he, he pricks on it, and he picks out them, and he pushes them to the edge to where they're about ready to hang up, and he backs off. <laughs> no, oh, no, no, no. Tell me some more or let me talk to your supervisor or whatever. And uh, So he did a wonderful job. And I think he got about, if I recall correctly, about 20 minutes worth. What we did was we took a snippet or two out of it, broke it up into very small fragments, and turned it into a viral email thing. This is before we had Facebook, dark ages 2005, and any other easy way to to pass it on except email. But it went blasting out through our email list. We encouraged people to blast it on out to their email list. And I got it back enough times that I know they just simply blasted their personal email list. And uh, it was hilarious. It was a I think that one of the parts that we uh, sent out was the idea that since we have uh, scheduled water regulations here, we, we ask people not to water the lawns except on alternate days by your house number, that kind of thing. Since it's they they can't they re- regulate your use of water, don't you think it would be you know, a similar thing for uh, for uh, this and you know for uh, fiber they will.
1: To watch television and control what you watch
2: our government has no business getting involved in what we watch on cable TV given the way the courts have been ruling on the separation of church and state some judge may rule that we can no longer receive religious programs on a city owned television system does that make you
0: want to vote for or against the proposal well I tell you what again it's a ridiculous question because there are all kinds of programs owned by by an Open Channel, which is funded by the government, and nobody stopped them. How, well, how would you respond to this question? Though? The author of the question is an idiot. That's how I'd respond to the question.
2: And so you get the, not only do you get the silly thing said, you get the silly thing labeled right there in the moment. And that went out, that went around and around. So that was really quite a wonderful thing. You can turn lemons into lemonade.
1: I think it's important also to note that there were some really silly questions, but there were some really dirty, horrible questions in there too, where they were trying to stir up racial animus within the city with that call. And, and it's just incredibly destructive, the kind of things that they were willing to do. And, and you might say another lesson is to never underestimate the lengths that some of these companies will go to in order to stop a project, because they have just engaged in the dirtiest tactics.
2: Absolutely. And that, that, that part is the part that really enraged me. I mean, We have a north side and a south side. I live on the north side, which is mostly black. And that kind of stuff is so destructive to the local community of people are trying to build. What would you say if we told you that they were never going to build it in the north, north side of town, on the black part of town? And that was so completely opposite. People who were really for it, that's what a large chunk of what they wanted was to try and unify the city more. And uh, so that stuff, yeah, they will do unbelievable things. And be aware, too, that that kind of push-pull is not just intended to influence folks directly. It also serves a secondary purpose of what will work, what will make these people crazy in the last two weeks. They're planning to be ugly. They're not just being ugly. They're planning to be uglier yet.
1: Well, the um the short story was that you ultimately ended up winning the referendum pretty handily. Uh, I believe it was sixty four percent, sixty five percent, something like that. Yes,
2: sixty four, sixty three, something like.
1: We'll touch base with you again, and we will continue the story because there's a a lot more to talk about. The ways in which um, this community was organized, and a lot of lessons for everyone else. Um, One of the things that we want to talk about in a future show, I think, is ideas for people who are in a community where they might be the real tip of the spear, where they're trying to figure out exactly how to get the whole thing started. So that's something people should look forward to. would love that. Terrific. Well, thank you so much for coming on the show. And thank you.
0: That was Christopher and John St. Julian of Lafayette, Louisiana. Be sure to follow John's blog at blog.lafayetteprofiber.com. We look forward to talking to John again about organizing a network movement at the local level. You can also read more detailed coverage of the story of Lafayette in our case study, Broadband at the Speed of Light, How Three Communities Built Next Generation Networks. The report is available for free from ILSR.org and MuniNetworks.org. If you have any questions or comments, email us directly at podcast at muninetworks.org. Our handle on Twitter is at Community Nets. This show was released on October 30th, 2012, thanks to Fit and the Conniptions for the music licensed using Creative Commons. The song is called Got My Modem Working.